Christmas can be a really joy-filled time. And I want to put it to you this evening that there is great joy to be had in knowing that Jesus came and that he came as a baby. As we heard in the worship, our joy is a person. There is much more joy to be had in that than all of those festivities. The incarnation, which is uh, the Christian word for God becoming man and dwelling with us, when grasped, is a source of joy. We have a gospel of joy. Did you know that's what the angels say to the shepherds as um, the, the angels appear to the shepherds at night? They say, we bring you good news of great joy. could also be translated, we bring you gospel of great joy. My aim this evening is that we would not simply leave with more information, but that your heart would be warmed, that your understanding of what God has done would fuel your affections for him, that you would have, mud, you'd have more good fuel to stack on the fire of your affections for him. I can remember years where my enjoyment of, of carol services or Christmas in general was, was purely nostalgia and festive atmosphere and family and friends, and they're good things but there is more for you if if that's your situation at the moment. Tonight we are going to look at what the incarnation means, what it means that God came to dwell with us. We're going to walk through this passage in a moment, and we're going to draw some implications as we go. But two weeks ago, if you were here, we started off this mini-series on the incarnation. And we looked at it from um, the start of the book of Matthew. And that story there is a story of surprise. You see the angels appear to Joseph and Mary and they're surprised and they're also surprised perhaps unsurprisingly that they say that God is with them and they will have a child and he will be God with them. Their lives are turned upside down by the tremendous reality that God has joined their family and that ultimately all people may join his. It reads as a story of surprise. But it wasn't a surprise to God. Like, it has always been God's plan. It, like, it wasn't a thought in the shower one day. One day, he wasn't just like, <laughs> oh, maybe I will join them in the universe. He has always known that he would do this. It didn't just occur to him. For all and all eternity, he has known that he would do this. It really was not a surprise for him, to him. And you see it throughout the, the Bible, because he's continually on message about it as well. He isn't like, he doesn't keep it entire, entirely secret until we get to the New Testament. If you know the Bible, or maybe you don't, think of the beginning of the story. You might know of Adam and Eve, and they do the one thing that God says not to do, because they distrust that he is as good as he says he is. And they're told if they do that thing, they will die. So God comes to them, and they're expecting death. But what are the first words out of God's mouth to them? Talk of childbirth. Childbirth, painfully, but talk of childbirth. They will die, but not yet. And that's not all. Along with the promise of a child, there is a promise of a child born in the future who will save them from death itself. Promised children in the Bible bring hope. The arrival of the promised child, promised from the start, brings ultimate hope. So having always been his plan, we're going to look at the arrival of Jesus, not from the perspective of Jewish teenagers or 
Persian princes or shepherds. We can look at it from his perspective, from Jesus' perspective, because we are given access to that in the book of Philippians in the New Testament, and I think that's pretty cool. Um, It says there, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what was his mind? Let's read. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I have, I have two brothers, um, and they're great, and I'm looking forward to catching up with them at Christmas, um, hearing how they're doing, um, watching the slow decline of Arsenal with them, um, and knowing my family talking quite a lot of politics. I'm the oldest in, in the family um, of my two brothers. Not of my parents. Um, <laughs> um, um, and, being, and being the oldest child came with some responsibilities, um, but it also came with its advantages too. I can remember um, when I was about eight, um, and it was Christmas, and I really wanted uh, a PlayStation 2, but there was, like, there was no chance that that was ever going to happen. Like, none of us ever could get something that, that was like, that big for Christmas. So... I went on a marketing campaign with my, my brothers, who were, who were five and six, convincing them of, of the wonders of the PlayStation 2, that their Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toy ideas would be redundant come July and really boring and lifeless. I, I told them about the, the high-end graphics of the PlayStation 2 and that, and that graphics were something we actually cared about. Um, and so with no real care for how they, much they like enjoy a PlayStation 2, I got them to join with me in asking for one big present. I used my position as the oldest to use them for their Christmas list. <laughs> um, so so why, why am I telling you this? Because I think it is it's something of human nature for us to try and use our positions and advantages for our own gain. Like shoppers on Black Friday, we often seek to get the best from a situation for ourselves. But we see here Jesus is radically different in his mindset. So what was his position? The passage says that he was in very nature God. The word used in the Greek means to have the very essence of. It's not some mere exterior or similarity. He was and is entirely God, who has been around for all eternity, who spoke creation into being and sustains the universe. He is the one, for instance, um, who, in, who, with Moses in the Old Testament, Moses asks to see something of God. And so God basically tells him to go and hide and then look at the place where he used to be. That's as close as Moses can get to seeing of who God is without dying because of the amount of glory and the greatness of God. He had every privilege, the greatest position, and he knew no lack So how does he use his position? Not for his own advantage, but the text says he used it for the advantage of others. 
He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He made himself nothing. Some translations use the word emptied himself, which we have to be careful of what we take that to mean. He was still fully God. He never becomes less God. It is as Paul writes in Colossians, in him all the fullness of God dwelt. He doesn't empty himself of any of the things that make him God. This making himself nothing or or emptying himself perhaps in your Bible is about position. Making himself nothing describes him choosing a low position as a servant. He knew he would come for a very long time and for a very long time he decided that he would come humbly as a servant. Though by rights, everything is his. He doesn't use it for his own comfort. He deserves it all. It is all his. But he shows that to him, his mindset Instead of having equality with God to mean getting and receiving, to Jesus it means giving. This is what the God we have is like. This is his character. To him, having means giving. And so he came, fully man. I've heard this explained like um, someone going into space and wearing a spacesuit so they can survive. Or do you know the TV show Undercover Boss, where you have a boss who pretends to be a new entry-level worker for a few weeks, and he, maybe he works in the front of the restaurant and does uh, everyday tasks and gets to know them and pretends to be one of them and t- pretends to have the same issues. Um, and at the end, you often have this like, really nice emotional ending, and he gives one of them like a car and might give one of them a, um, a raise, and one of them might get fired. Um, <laughs> These analogies, they don't really work. He didn't pretend to be one of us. He didn't just cover up his goodness or his godness. He became one of us and suffered with us. Staying fully God, he became fully man. The same word used to describe him being fully God is used to describe him being fully man. He is just as human as he is God. He who fed Moses and the Israelites in the desert submitted himself to a body that knew hunger. He didn't just observe hunger close up, taking notes for when he goes back up. He became hungry. Paul continues by describing uh, the continuing descent of humility to the cross. It says, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. From the manger, he, he kept going lower, until he knew the disgrace and pain of of probably the most cruel method of execution ever developed. What a descent that that the eternal God would submit himself to this. His glory before was that which was so great that people could not cope with seeing. The Bible says he came like one from whom people would hide their faces from him. So was his suffering, they would not want to look at it. In the manger, we see the God-man, fully God, who has known an eternity of unbridled power and dominion, now also man, vulnerable, dependent, and small. The same word that spoke creation into being spoke himself into a womb in order to serve us. So what what does this passage mean, uh, this stuff mean here for us now in Christmas 2019? How is this fuel for joy? Well, our first implication today is this. 
The incarnation means that God wants to know you more than you want to know him. Do you, do you struggle to relate to God? Is your impression of him someone who is distant? And you can't really know him, more like an idea, and you can know of an idea, but you can't really know an idea. And this might seem for you even hard at Christmas time when language of Christianity is, is everywhere. Um, does, it, does God seem like a old Christmas carol verse, unintelligible and otherworldly? Or like Santa, who knows everything and you can write to, but is impersonal, judges you, and only really pays attention once a year. The, the Christian author C.S. Lewis writes that it would be impossible for Hamlet, a character in a play, to meet the author, Shakespeare, or to take a modern example, be impossible for Harry Potter to meet J.K. Rowling. For them to meet, the author must write themselves into the story. This is something of the reality of the incarnation. God writing himself into human history, coming as a man, that we may know him. He has entered in at our level, and to do so has given up his position and come low. He willingly gave up his glory, the creator of the world, now homeless, in order that you may know the abundant richness of knowing him. He has not left us alone to try and find a way to him or learn what he is like but he has come in a way that we can understand. He walked at our level. He didn't want to know us from a distance. He, he doesn't come as a commuter. He didn't come for a brief cultural experience on earth. No, he moved in. He went through all, all that we read in order that you may be able to know him, to make that possible. He comes like us so that we can relate to him. God isn't just an, some sort of invisible force like many of the world religions might describe, he, ha he now has bones and arteries and skin. His intent was and is to know you. We manage to take all sorts of things personally. I don't know if you're like me, but I can, I can somehow take like a, a weird look someone might think someone's giving me as like, oh, that person must really dislike me, and actually they're just thinking about something entirely different. Like we can... Like we, we can take all sorts of things personally that we shouldn't. My friends, I'd encourage you, take this personally. Take the incarnation, take him coming as a man and, and suffering and coming to this earth personally. So seek him with the assurance that he cares more about knowing you than you ever will. Seek to make your Bible reading more regular. Carve out a few minutes for prayer where you wouldn't before. Draw near to him, and he will surely draw near to you. It's, it's an open goal. Shoot. If you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, I'd encourage you to, this Christmas, take a moment and ask him to reveal himself to you. For just as the king of glory came into the world, so can he into your life too. So the incarnation means God wants to know you more than you want to know him. The incarnation also means that there is a new way to be human. Well, what's, what's the old way? I want to put it to you that as a result of mankind's rebellion against God, our relationship with each other are fundamentally broken and so characterized by competition and pride. 
Think about it. Just, just look at children, um, for instance. However sweet they may be one minute, the next, they might be tearing the house down because someone potentially got more cake. Or, or, or like fast forward a few years, like I've I just moved job, um, I'm in a new workplace, and it's, it's so easy to slip into a mentality there of how can I look to be the best? How can I get the credit for this work? Am I doing better than that person? It's so easy to get into the culture there. It's of, is that person noticing this? Are they seen as better than me? Or, or look at the news and you'll see stories of oppression and corruption and divide. Our, our, our humanity is, is competitive. In the Bible, um, this is encapsulated by the story of two people. Um, they're twin brothers. Um, their names are Jacob and Esau. Um, and they're continually stealing from each other. And they fight, they distrust each other, they deceive each other to be seen as the greatest, to get the glory. They even, it tells us, they, they wrestle in the womb of their mother. Like Adam and Eve, like Jacob and Esau, like me with my brothers when I was eight, we seek to assert our own rights. But Jesus comes as a man and makes a new way to be human. That's what we find in the manger. He did not assert his position but used it for our benefit. He humbled himself for our sake. There is um, one of a time in the Bible when we hear about activity in a womb. Um, soon before the birth of Jesus, in, um, it's in Luke um, chapter 1, his, his mother Mary and her friend Elizabeth are, are about to hang out. Elizabeth is also pregnant, so they're both pregnant. And he's pregnant of a boy who will be John the Baptist in the future, if you've heard of him. When Mary comes to Elizabeth, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and the baby boy in Elizabeth's womb, we are told in God's word, leaps for joy. Wrestling is replaced with joyful affection for another. This is the fruit of the gospel. The call now is, instead of wanting to use what I have to advance my position, be it with family, with friends, in church, at work, to follow Jesus in how he acted, and to use what I have to serve others. How, how do we do this? Well, we start by knowing that we don't have to carve out our own position, because Jesus has given us one greater than we ever could. He has made us his brothers, which means that we share in the inheritance that he gets. We are securely loved as he is, and as much seen as he is. What greater honor is there available to me that I might grasp after that? This knowledge is a, is a weapon against wanting to be validated and given glory in this world. And he has given us his spirit, which enables us. It's in this passage. Um, it says, have this mindset, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then after the passage, it says in verse 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. He puts it in you. It's his mindset. He gives it you by his spirit. Work out that place. It's who you are now. You are family with a God who humbly went low for others. He became like us so that we could become like him. 
pretty much all application in, in the Bible for the Christian life is, can be boiled down to this, is to be who you are now. This is, this is what it is for you to live life now. This is, it suits you. Go low. It suits you. I, I mentioned my relationships with my brothers earlier. Um, but with one of them, it actually got quite bad in our teenage years. Um, but because of this, I could go to him um, a couple of years ago, make it a bit awkward, and ask to talk to him. And instead of needing to prove that I was right, I could apologize. I, I could tell him I love him. And after that, find opportunities like his birthday to show it. Go low. Seek the best of those around you. It's, it's who you are now. I would invite you to consider if there's anywhere in your life where you, you feel like you're grasping after position or to be seen as the best at something, or, and bring it before him. Repent and, and ask him to help you change. The incarnation means that there's a new way to be human, and so we are, we are free to not need to seek our own advantage. And thirdly, the incarnation means that there is a man in heaven. Let's read the second half of this passage. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name as above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Having, having taken a low position, Jesus is now exalted by the Father. The Father sees Jesus using what he has to serve others, willingly going low, redeeming his people to, to give them his glory. Basically, the Father sees Jesus doing what is natural for God to do, and the Father just loves it. And he goes crazy about Jesus and gives him glory and exalts him and shows him to be who he is fully God. As an aside, what a family we are invited into. A loving union of three who are continually giving glory to one another, who have now included us into that, that we might get to go low for them and we might get to give glory to them. So Jesus is now exalted and full of glory, but because of the incarnation, he is still fully man one like us, our, our man on the inside, someone who knows what it is to be, a, a, to be human in the Trinity, in heaven. My um, housemate, Ali, um, his, his parents were um, over earlier this week. Um, they're as, as kind and fun as you might expect them to be if you know Ali. Um, his dad uh, told us a story of how about 15 years ago, they arrived as refugees from Iran, um, fleeing persecution. Um, and it's an incredible story with close shaves and multiple passports, which I found very cool. Um, <laughs> and, it's, and it's a hard story. He, he, he said after they arrived, when they had nothing, where they knew no one, he asked Jesus for help and said to him, remember when you were a refugee? And Jesus could. He could remember clearly. 
And because he was made like us in every way and is now able to sympathize with us, it doesn't stop with remembering. I want to help us grasp this by briefly talking about the musical phenomenon of um, sympathetic resonance. It's not something I knew much about before preparing <laughs> this. So if you, if you had two similar instruments in, in the same room, and there's not much interference in the way, so you had two pianos, and if I were to play, say, an A note over here, because of the vibrations. This one over here would very, very quietly, sympathetically resonate with that one and carry the same tune. Because of the incarnation, Jesus has an instrument like us in heaven. And so when a chord of suffering is struck in your life, hallelujah, there is a sympathetic resonance in heaven he sounds that same chord. He has so joined himself with you. He has so joined himself with his church. He is surely not distant from your suffering. For we do not have a brother who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. When you feel the loss of a loved one, the feeling of loneliness, fear of the future, when you feel trapped, when you feel the pain of sickness, he sympathizes with you, which means he feels with you. I think it can be easy to slip into thinking when we, at Christmas, we hear about the, the word Emmanuel, we hear about the idea of God being with us, that this is a past thing, that he came as Emmanuel, he came to be with us, but then he left. No, he is no less Emmanuel now. He is God with us, who knows us. He came to be with us, and he has not left us. So what an assurance it is that the one exalted above all things, who has power over everything in creation, is with you in the dirt. He is not unmoved by your pain, and he is in charge. Get the band up. In the manger, we find that God has come down the mountain and dwelt with his people as man. What good news the incarnation is. As a result, there is a new way to be human. We can know, confident and paralleled, that God's heart is to know us. And we can know that there is one in heaven who sympathizes with our weaknesses and does not leave us alone. What a God we have. <laughs>